Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Welcome to this week's episode of Safe Room, a horror video game podcast and proud member of Bloody Disgusting's Bloody FM podcast network. I'm your host, Jay Krieger. And I'm the other one, Neil Bow. And it's time for our monthly segment, The Inventory, Safe Room's review show, in which we discuss our time with a handful of newly released AAA and indie horror titles that left an impression on us, for better or worse. This month, we're going to be chatting about My Friendly Neighborhood, Exoprimal, Nightmare Zapping. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back and chat about Xenonauts 2, Save Room the Merchant, and last but not least, Remnant 2. So we're going to begin with My Friendly Neighborhood, which is a game that I quite honestly forgot was coming out this month. And it ended up being one of my favorites, I think, of the month, which is I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but I'm just really (laughs) excited to uh, not only have had the realization that, hey, this game's coming out this month, but that it really did click with me in a big way. So My Friendly Neighborhood was developed by John and Evan Zeminski, and it's published by DreadXP. In this game, it's a first-person survival horror in which repairman Gordon is tasked with shutting down a rogue broadcast of a now-defunct children's Saturday morning puppet show titled My Friendly Neighborhood. Should be simple enough if it weren't for the sentient puppets inhabiting the studio who have a tendency to, well, hug those who get too close to them to death. Now Gordon must fight through the overly friendly hordes while solving puzzles along the way. Codes were provided by DreadXP, and, as always, uh, we are both contributors to DreadXP's editorial side of things. Um, So, Neil, I played a little bit more of this than you, so I'm curious, for the brief slice that you had played, how did this game land for you? Better than the demo did, because I bemoaned the demo before because, you know, I think we've discussed this about other games, sometimes when you take a slice out of context in the middle of a game and slap it at the demo. And I get why, because you don't want to sort of reveal the beginning of your stories and all the different things go into it. But it can leave you not really getting to the groove of things. And then I always, mm-hmm. instantly my brain just checks out of it and goes, no, I can't, I'll just wait for the game because that's the way. And I'm glad that was the case in a way because you come into this and from the off it sets the scene really well really get into the atmosphere and vibe of the place you know in a way that is um whilst also having a little you know a little knowledge of what the demo gave in terms of like the uh mechanics of it but yeah it's a strange one to sort of describe at first because i think you and i were both surprised at just how survival horror-esque it is you know really really i mean 
it's you know, down to the inventory that's very Resident Evil. You know, the aesthetic kind of gives a little of a uh, Bioshocky sort of vibe to it. You know, System Shock style. So, um, but at the same time, yeah, it's doing all these different things quite well. And you know, kid friendly horror is this thing that is. I I do note even within like the horror community, especially like you know, critics and um, you know players in general they're dismissive of a lot of it because it feels manipulative and, you know, it's very much designed to sell merch, you know, that uh, only today, you know, on this day recording, we went to like the, some like a uh, festival, fun festival thing, a local place with my daughter. And like, you know, one of the things she won on a prize was like one of those knockoff huggy wuggy dolls from, you know, <laughs> and then, we went indoors to these stalls and they had little keyrings of uh, Gart and the Banban uh, characters, you know, and these are things that even I, like, you know, I know a bit of, but, you know, considering how big they are for that audience, it's all, like, foreign to me, you know, so what's interested me with, like, the last couple of things that have come out from DreadXP is that they have had these, this kid focus, but they've been very much in keeping with what we'd expect. You know, my, my daughter knew very much about Amanda the Adventurer before from like having seen videos of the concept demo and stuff like that. Whereas this is very much coming in full fat from the off, you know, even with having seen the demo. Um, but this is the one that seems to be resonating with all sites, you know. It's not just, the, it's, it has that kid-centric design in a lot of ways, but it plays more adult, you know. And I think that is a really crucial thing you need. And yeah, personality-wise, it's just doing lots of things that evolve on these games that have really dragged kids in over the years and kept them with them. I suppose, I don't know if they would take it as a compliment, it has that feel of the legacy of Five Nights at Freddy's in terms of how that grew as a series and become different things. And you know, Security Breach is a lesser version of this, to be fair, in a lot of ways, where it is so very much about hide-and-seek and all that, but it is more open and, you know, you get to do more things with it and you have areas and bosses and whatever you will. This, yeah, does just feel like that next step. Like we've weaned you on all these kind of games where, you know, it's all about running and hiding and all that nonsense and all these things from childhood that are all fucked up now. And yeah, this just takes it in a whole new direction. You know, I'm looking forward to playing more of it. You know, I think just by the time I started, it was a bit late to sort of really get into it at that point. That and, you know, too much playing House Flipper this week, which is you know, to- <laughs> it's on me. That's that's what happens when you just find yourself with too much free time to not worry about horror games. <laughs> You're like, I could play the horror game, but <laughs> you know, like that, I'll do this thing that I wouldn't do in real life. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, it's a really interesting game. I think so far. So, I, I mean, you've spent more time with me, so you've probably got a bit of a more in-depth sort of perception of it. Yeah, so I didn't play the demo when it was originally released, and I didn't see any of the marketing material for it. So other than a couple of screenshots that popped up on Twitter, I was under the false assumption that this was going to be mascot horror in along the lines of Five, Night of, Five Nights at Freddy's, yeah. right? So I assumed, oh, well, it's going to be puppets, and they're going to have giant fangs and smeared with blood and these types of things. And I was really pleasantly surprised to find that this feels like the opposite of mascot horror in the sense that it's taking puppets and whatnot, but it's not 
horrifying than yeah. in the traditional sense where it's like, oh, let's throw a ton of gore and blood and things in this kind of like surface level examination of what it means to be horror, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that the route that they went with this in, and I ranted about it in uh, my column for Dread XP this week, um, the fact that the puppet designs are all more or less like very normal in the sense that like Jim Henson would be like, oh, these yeah. are great. You could see these being on something like Sesame Street, most of them, right? For a majority of the game. Um, I won't, I guess, if, since you haven't played too much of it, I won't talk about the back half of it. But for a majority of the experience, you know, there are the sort of the typical puppets that you're going to be encountering, which are essentially five different puppets that have more or less the same abilities, but they have their own personalities, yeah. own voice, own um, costume design and whatnot. And the way in which they're utilized to be unsettling, I found is far more effective than something that's just, you know, smeared with blood or has giant talons, which is you come across these puppets and, you know, sometimes if they see you, they run right at you. But most of the time, when you walk into an environment, they're not immediately aware of your presence. Mm. So you see them kind of just staring off into space and they begin to like mutter to themselves and they're kind of like rocking back and forth in this almost dormant state which I found to be far more unsettling, uh, even once you kind of get a handle on like the weaponry and whatnot, which I want to get into because I thought that that was also this interesting twist that, uh, you know, My Friendly Neighborhood has in that it takes a lot of the staples of survival horror and other games that we've seen, but it has a unique spin on it that works for the world itself mm. and the direction of the world, which I would say from start to finish, it does a really good job of taking the fundamentals and the foundations of other subgenres and the like, but they have that, you know, Saturday morning kids puppet show twist on it in a way that makes sense that doesn't feel forced. Um, and, you know, whether that be the approach with the puppets or in terms of like the firearms, which I mentioned, which instead of, you know, <laughs> you running up against a bunch of puppets and then just kind of like doming them with nine millimeters or shotguns <laughs> or something, the weaponry has a more child-friendly spin on it but they're no less effective and that's instead of having a handgun you have basically a rolodex gun and you can fire off sticky notes that have different letters on them then the shotgun is something along those lines that it has uh, typewriter scrolls in it and then i think you have something like the uh typewriter knob yeah. that you can throw and that's a grenade and that explodes so it is a really great example of taking the core setting and theme of your game and having all the other mechanics be representative of that. And furthermore, you know, when you talk about the puzzles and the item management, that is through and through survival horror, which I was not expecting. Again, mm. I was expecting something a little more action oriented, something that was not as concerned with puzzles or item management. And the item management, you know, you mentioned that this basically has the attache case from Resident Evil 4, right? Yeah. So you, you know, have a finite amount of space to fit your things in there. And then if you go to a save room, you can kind of stash things in there. But it's more than that. You know, ammo is, can be limited at certain points. But on top of that, you collect these coins that can be used for health stations and save stations. So again, like it has these very sort of fundamental principles of survival horror that at certain points in the game, you know, if you're careless, like you can put yourself in a bad way. Yeah. It's not to say that there's necessarily a plethora of boss fights or anything like that, that can really screw up your progress if you don't kind of pay attention to your item management. But I would say overall, you know, the item management adds a little bit of pressure into 
approaching combat in each environment in a way that has a little more forethought than I was anticipating. Mm. And furthermore, as a nod, another nod to like Resident Evil, when you re-enter rooms, even if you have, you know, in big air quotes, have killed a puppet, the puppets will respawn mm. unless you go up to their bodies and you wrap them up in tape, yeah. which then ensures the next time you revisit the room, the puppets can't get up and whatnot, which is essentially like dousing the crimson heads yeah. in gasoline, <laughs> um, which I thought was a great nod. And it almost only t- almost takes on sort of like a Bloodborne-esque mastery of environments and that you really do have to pay attention to like, okay, if I'm going through this environment, you need to remember what type of enemies you're going to face. And the fact that you have the ability to dwindle that number down, like you have to be doing this sort of like cost evaluation in terms of your inventory. Okay, I've got three rolls of tape. Am I going to use a lot of tape in this room or am I going to save that for a later room that I might, you know, revisit multiple times? Yeah. So having to factor those things in gave this world and sort of the traversal of it an extra layer of complexity that, again, I just was not expecting. And it made the game far more strategic than I was anticipating again. Um, I guess in terms of the puzzles, like this has a really great sort of construction that, again, is much like a Spencer Mansion in the terms of like, you find yourself going for stretches of like, okay, like I need to find this key. I've come across three, you know, square doors that I need that key for to get through them. And when you finally find that key, it's that aha moment where the world just opens up and it's so incredibly rewarding. And that is really much in tune with the pacing of the game, which is, it's one thing to say, okay, I want to do survival horror. Clearly Resident Evil is going to be a point of reference, but how often do we see people that actually nail the timing between finding a new area or finding that crucial key item that then opens up the world in this whole new way? Um, and in this, I think that it nails it really, really well. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm excited to hear, you know, you getting back into it a little bit more. Um, and, you know, maybe we'll chat about this at another point um, down the line in Safe Room. But, you know, I think that for a game that I had some pretty, you know, misplaced expectations for in terms of what to expect, um, I was really quite surprised with how faithful this thing feels through and through to survival horror. Yeah. Um, you know, from the opening moments to, I think, my closing Runtime was like three hours and 30 minutes or something like that. So it's not something that overstays its welcome. But when it ends, it feels like, okay, I've gone through this sprawling environment and the various sets. There's like four or five studio sets that you get to go through that feel like legitimate, you know, Sesame Street sets, if you will. And I I absolutely loved that about it. Yeah. And, you know, I was thinking as well with this this family of developers, you know, Dave is... um, obviously very famous for dusk you know uh, and um that is great because it really evokes quake in the best possible way and stuff like hexen but this is doing a similar job in a way in terms of it's great from what i played because it gets a very certain era and that era specifically is when the gamecube came out and you had luigi's mansion and you had resident evil remake those two games, you know, two of my favorite games on that console, like that. You know, I love Luigi's Mansion, and this feels like the marriage of that, you know, like that. It's, it's the goofy weapons that you get, uh, you know, that side, you know, the whole like friendlyish nature of it, you know, whilst having undertones of something horrific. Well, and yeah, it's those things, but you know, it has the structure that is more 
you know, Resident Evil. And like I said, having the almost crimson head thing of um, having to nullify enemies so they don't return. Um, yeah, so I was, that is something I'm really fascinated with early on. And to hear that it's only, you know, a few hours long, is kind of, not relief, but I'm glad to hear it because I think you could easily drag it out. And I think when we go back to survival horror of that era, you look at it and you go, oh, yeah, really now, when we've played it so many times and you're used to it, you only take three, four hours, if that, you know, to get through it. You know, I, I know someone who, like, plays the early Resident Evils and, and, and tries to get them done in, like, fucking an hour and a half, some stupid shit. And it's like, <laughs> it's like I, I could play those games again and again, knowing everything I know and still be, like, hesitant on sections and go, nah, like, uh, it's going to take me a while because I'm <laughs> going to forget shit. And, yeah, it's really just captured a lot of that so far. So, yeah. Uh, well, to, to be fair, this game, I think, you know, it's the type of thing where I finished it in the amount of time that I did, but then I went back and I was thinking, oh, wait, there was definitely a secret area or something that I mm. missed at a certain point. So like if you branch out more and explore some of the environments and there might be one or two puzzles that, you know, give you additional rewards that I missed. Cause I found out in my initial playthrough, I missed one of the major weapons of the game and I just never got it yeah. because I missed out on it. And that's kind of one of those things that makes me want to go back and revisit it much in the way that I would with the classic Resi games where it's like, okay, now I can go through with cheat codes or I can push myself to beat in this amount of time. And to see a game like this, that seemingly through and through, much like the uh, you know comparison you made to them understanding Quake and kind of channeling that energy. Again, for me going into this and assuming, oh, you know, it's going to be this mascot horror action game and to, you know, basically be completely proven wrong in that regard has been one of the best surprises I think that uh, I've had this year. Yeah, I think that goes back to what I was saying about the demo is not knowing what it actually is made that demo a lot weaker because you, you have an expectation going into it. Um, and I mean, the, one of the first things that struck me about the game was the, the weapons and how inventive they were like that at that point. But everything else was a bit aimless at that point. So yeah, it, it's great like that. Um, they've also added a difficulty that is very child-friendly now as well. So it's even more accessible. And you know, I, I would say to people who just, I, I've seen a lot of reviews of this, you know, especially on Steam, very much into the wanting to dog on everything that kids like in terms of horror. Like, oh, it's not Gartner Bandai, it's not Poppy's Playtime, it's not my, you know, it's not Hello Neighbor and stuff like that. It's like, yeah. But without those games, kids wouldn't be interested, you know, in horror in the same way. You know, you can dog them for being terrible to you because you don't find them scary or interesting, but they are gateways. You know, we've had that for kids in terms of like movies years and years ago where you'd have gateway horror and that's kind of died in a lot of ways now but games have kind of taken the place of that you know my daughter can reel off fucking any number of facts about those games like that without ever having played a second of them you know so that is the gateway and that leads to games like this you know they can get comfortable with that make the evolution to this you know survival horror is something that is very difficult to get into you know in any way shape or form and to have a game that really is catering for everybody like that is admirable you know i think that's why it's been uh, like this big success story 
this year and it, it's great to see you know amanda the adventurer was its own success story just because it had a viral nature to the original version of it but it still felt like it was in that pack of games you know that were being looked down on by a lot of audience i mean even when you look at the reviews of this one of the big sort of moany points you get from people who very often do that thing about horror where they go if it's not scary it's not horrible it's not worthwhile but it does the job it does the job fantastically and um yeah i'm actually i'm really looking forward to more because it is really establishing an interesting world as well and it, and it has substance and you know and you know if, in the case of dread xp i'm sure they've got a bit more control over the characters and uh people you know the merchandising rights about the characters than you have for those games we've mentioned previously which is why i think people see it as being so cheap because their licensing is just fucked and everyone just makes money off them without the developers making that money i suppose so it, it's it's a difficult thing Okay, but you cannot discount everything that has come before this just because you don't like it, you know. Yeah, I, I think this is important as anything. I would say the last thing I'll comment is just that it is child-friendly while not being a children's game yeah. in that sort of sense, right? Again, I'm a 31-year-old man that has enjoyed this game through and through, and, you know, it doesn't have the sort of similar trappings or familiar trappings of survival horror, which is again, blood and guts and these things, but it is still very unsettling. And when the game goes full horror towards the end of it, that really does pop in a way that is quite effective because of the fact of how well managed the game is it having tension and then having these more sort of, I don't even, I pause to say like lighthearted moments, but it is this type of thing that has humor incorporated into it, but this is not, a very childish game, if you will, um, if that makes sense. But anyways, um, I think it's time to move on to our next yes. game, which is Exoprimal, which you're going to tell me all about. Yeah, uh, I probably, we probably won't spend as long on this one, uh, the two, just because it, it's not that kind of game. I mean, really, in terms of horror games, should we be including it? Yeah, you know, it's Capcom, it's in the RE engine, and, you know, it's... A big debate about this game has been the you know the Capcom game with dinosaurs in it. It has a character that looks very much like a character from Dino Crisis, but it's not Dino Crisis like that. And you know, that has been the big thing for this game that people have kind of taken it to task with is I'm not going to like this because it duped me somehow into thinking that they were going to make a Dino Crisis. And I understand that. I, I get that to a degree, but when you focus on that, it just feels a bit depressing, you know, to see the game like that. But that isn't really where the game's problems lie when we get down to it. Um, before we go there, let's sort of talk about what the game is. It's a co-op shooter in the vein of Overwatch to a degree, yeah, where you are a bunch of humans who, you know, ride these mech suits, uh, these exosuits, if you will, and basically you travel back in time but not that far to fight dinosaurs that pour out of portals from the past yeah so you're both out of time and your job is basically to be tested on how well you kill dinosaurs that are pouring out of portals from the past it feels like a really classically capcom idea you know in so many ways and that to me is 
its strength is that it doesn't take itself seriously and there's a little bit of it where you look at it and go this probably was the dino crisis game at one point but they realized that dino crisis fans would have a fucking shit fit if it was actually a dino crisis game this is nothing like it in the same way that dino crisis 3 was like that but that was just terrible for different reasons but you know it was also just crazy but that game ironically has a lot more in common with this and you know, Dino Crisis in general has with it. Um, so yeah, the idea is you have two modes. You have a PvE mode where you are still against another team, but they are like a ghost. You're basically going through the level, facing waves of enemies, and it's basically who can get to the end quicker. And the other mode is PvP, where you're doing the same thing, but at some point you'll basically be doing the payload thing where you're escorting it to a certain point. But you're both doing your own and you will intersect at some point. So not only are you fight the dinos, but each other, stuff like that. So you can basically prevent the other team from advancing. Very much like that. Great. All Overwatchy stuff. But we all know what Overwatch's big problem has been in uh, the years since it came out. And, you know, how it was such a big deal to begin with. But it was also a full price game. And... A full price game with the sensibilities of a game that was free to play, you know, and really aiming for that esports angle. And where Capcom feel like they're making a game back from the early 2000s in terms of the concept, um, in terms of the practices put into this game, it feels like Capcom of that horrible little era we had before they had their resurgence, where they were like, hey, people are making money off this shit five years ago. Let's do the exact same thing now, you know, like out of time, you know, and unfortunately the game really suffers for that. You know, it's very grindy. There's a season pass, battle pass, fucking all that stuff, you know, separate from a game that is already a full priced game with very little content to begin with. You know, the modes I've just described are it really, you know, um, you have to play it online. You know, you have to play with other people. Um, which is a doomsday device for anything that Capcom have put out really in multiplayer that isn't like Monster Hunter, I think, we've seen in recent years. And it's a shame because I think what is there as a core game, if you were to like get it on the cheap and play it for like 10 hours, you'd be like, yeah, I like this. This is fun. You know, like really, you are able to punch Triceratops in the face with a giant exosuit. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and you know take on a carnosaur and do all these cool abilities and just it's fun in the moment you know win or lose you're having a good time but it just there's not much to it and then you have all that stuff on top of it that is you know not consumer friendly it just dooms it from the outset you know this it, is here's a game that you know we don't like to call games game pass games really but Here's a game that really just needed to be or needed to be free to play from the beginning with all that stuff. Get that player base. Yeah, and that would have done the right thing. At least then if you've got season pass, whatever, it makes sense. It's worrying slightly for me, just in that, on the one hand, I like that Capcom is trying to branch out from what it's doing, just bringing back old franchises, all that stuff. You know, the story content kind of, and the characters kind of give me that same feeling that Binary Domain did, 
where it's very stereotypically cheesy stuff, but it works, you know, like that. And I almost applaud the fact they've got a character that looks exactly like Regina from Dino Crisis, who isn't, clearly isn't for so many reasons. But you know, there's no way they didn't do it on purpose. You know, there's a fucking character that is basically Ben Whishaw in, you know, the Bond films, you know, like playing Q. You know, and yeah, it's all just very much that's that character from that thing, that's that character from that thing. And it's daft, you know, all about, I mean, very timely story with like it will be controlled by this rogue AI that's basically just making everything, all these decisions for humanity. And but it, yeah, it's nonsense that doesn't really matter. But at the same time, it's entertaining nonsense. Better story than Overwatches have actually produced, funnily enough, uh, you know, for all the promises of uh, you know, all the great world building that was built up around that game. Yeah, you know, um, none of it actually really occurred in game. You know, here, at least, the reason given is like this AI is mental and is basically just giving you humanity a constant test against waves of enemies by going back into this horrible point in their past where everything went to shit and now they have to keep fighting dinosaurs for eternity unless they can break this loop and yeah that makes more sense than whatever the fuck overwatch is going for so that's something in its favor and a good sort of building block to build to the future but it really needs to change you know as a game there's just so much about it that it doesn't work it's just too shallow really for the price you're paying and there's too much you know greedy shit accompanying it which is a shame you know i i really would you know recommend this game otherwise i just think yeah you know, it's got the wrong setup and you know, that that does just unfortunately reek of the bad practices capcom used to have which is a shame because you know taking something like binary domain and crossing it with lost planet and crossing it with dino crisis mm. That sounds like the type of shit that would be, you know, right at home for me to play. But um, the fact that you have to spend, what I would imagine, $70 for the base game and then a $40 for a season pass to get the full spectrum of the experience. And then yeah. it still has this intrusive microtransaction stuff and sort of uh, bad business practices behind that. And, you know, the fact that that is a larger cost to, you know, barrier to entry than if it was something that was just released on Game Pass and then if you, you know, that core gameplay loop clicks with you and you buy that season pass for 40 bucks, you view that as like a deal, yeah. has that bigger, you know, player base and whatnot. But I mean, granted, I don't know the numbers behind this game in terms of player base, but it sounds like something that, you know, once people get it sort of hearing the uh, bad business practices, perhaps, or the microtransaction being shoved down people's throats. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's basically like cancer for a game to build a core player base, right? People are going to just run from this basically when yeah. they're thinking about the options out there and you mentioned overwatch a couple of times that game's fucking free right yeah. <laughs> so when you talk about what am i going to go with if it's a hero based shooter or this or that competitive multiplayer live service game am i going to go for the game i have to spend basically a hundred dollars or more to actually get the full swath of content or the one that's free to start i get sort of my hook, it gets its hooks into me and then I can buy whatever season pass that then branches off into this mm. or that content. Yeah, I don't see an avenue for this game to grow in that sense either. The, you know, the modes they've got are probably the most fun way you could do the concept. Um, maybe you could do just like an endless horde mode, but even that would be like, yeah, very much. How a, long are you going to do that for? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a much of a muchness and yeah, it's a game that will no, no doubt get tweaked. 
may even find an audience, but Capcom's relationship with online games, if they don't work out the gate, even if it's not, even if it's their fault that they don't work, they tend to just shelve them. You know, look what happened to Resident Evil Reverse. You know, it's like yeah. a game that died before it ever existed, effectively, you know, like all Resistance, where they were going for the Dead by Daylight money and then just gave up the first sign of trouble. You know, it, it's fine. You know, they're doing well with everything. They can have a miss. I think as a game, it's not a miss. You know, it, I think it's a pretty competent game. Looks great. Had some fun stuff in it. Like I said, if you can find it on a subscription service when it finally does go that way or find it cheap, it's worth a bit of your time uh, if the audience is still there at that point. But that, that, that that's the problem, isn't it? When you come to games like this, it's like, play it now while people are actually still playing it and it might actually be relevant and fun. Or try and wait out for a time where there might not be anyone playing it. <laughs> you you uh, Your chance of fun is diminished somewhat. We shall see. Yeah, it's a very okay game because of all these problems. So, But uh, I think that's enough on that one. Yeah, well, I guess we'll move on to uh, our next game before our quick break, and that's going to be Nightmare Zapping, mm. which is the first, I believe, example of a game that we covered for Horror Bite and then ended up coming to fruition as this full-fledged sort of project yeah. that uh, you know is a full-fledged game that's on Steam now. Um, so we covered this back in March for Horror Bites, and Nightmare Zapping is from developer Maldo19, and that was just when it was an Itch.io project that had basically the first slice of what the experience was, mm. and now we have that original slice and then a whole new chapter. And so in Nightmare Zapping is an anthology horror storytelling game in which you are kind of like staring at this boob tube TV and each channel on the TV represents a different tale of terror connected to the town that's encountering this supernatural phenomena. Um, and now, as I said, it's a full-fledged Steam release that has the original content with an all-new chapter yeah. that features the nearby town of Laurel, which is basically experiencing the phenomenon that happened in the town of Canella in the first chapter and now it's spread to now this nearby town. Yeah. Uh, special thanks to Maldo19 for supplying both of us with codes for this. And essentially, this is more content along the lines of what we got with the Itch.io project, yeah. right? So it's more channels. But I think that while that's an overly simplistic sort of description of what this entails, I think that the more time and fanfare and just seeing a positive reception to that Itch.io project really did inspire a new chapter with new channels yeah. that not only feels like a continuation of what made that Itch.io project work so well, but if anything, you know, having that sort of audience support behind it, it feels like it pushed the developer to not only expand the content, but to refine perhaps some of the storytelling that's done with these new chapters. Hmm. Um, what I really liked from the outset was that this continuation of the supernatural phenomenon, which is basically this tentacle monster that has brought this sort of Cthulhu-esque hell onto the town that appears in multiple different ways. The new chapter that is included in this has new channels, but there's this summer festive theme tied to it. Yeah. So you have this big summer festival that everybody in this new town is all excited for and basically distracted by. 
And then you have all these small segmented storylines that are going on along the way that, you know, the player then is going to see these small little bites of the horror that is actually happening behind the scenes in this town and whatnot, which was a really cool approach, I think, to take with this because it kind of has that sequel energy mm. of basically like a horror movie, right? You have you have the killer in the first movie and now we have this themed one where it's like, oh, there's this summer festival and whatnot. And, yeah. You know, the sweaty summer nights and what's going on, what is distracting people from seeing what's happening in their town. Um, so in addition to the fact that there are new channels that have new storylines and whatnot, I was really impressed with, and it's a continuation from the original chapter, but it's to a more so degree, I think, in that certain stories are interconnected with one another, but they don't play out in the sort of normal order of things. They yeah. have, you know, an introduction to some characters, you have a couple of other storylines, and then you circle back almost to see a conclusion to what happened with other characters and yeah. whatnot, or see how previous events will influence later storylines and characters that are introduced. So there's this great interconnectivity between the channels and the storylines there within, even if it's not necessarily like this immediate resolution, which if anything, I think really goes hand in hand with the idea that there's this supernatural event that's happening, but it's not immediately apparent to people that are there. Mm. Because if it was, then, you know, if we got immediate resolutions to each of these channels, it's kind of like, okay, how do people not realize this is happening? And so having sort of a delayed payoff almost for some of those storylines is really the most ideal way to handle that type of storyline. Hmm. Um, for instance, like there's one where essentially these kids stumble upon an abandoned house that then has that Cthulhu type tentacle monster in it. And then, you know, later down the line in certain channels, you'll find out that like, oh, other characters end up in that house because a character has lured them there kind yeah. of thing which was, again, this really great sort of interconnected, small-scale storytelling that I thought gave a nice through line between chapter one and chapter two or part one and part two that allowed this to have connectivity other than just, you know, mm -hmm. the main monster that's behind everything. It felt very much an organic continuation, kind of like a plague almost, if you will. Um, but I'm curious for you, with your time you spent with it, what did you think of the final product of Nightmare Zapping. Well, you know, as you know, when it came to Dread XP writing, you know, this, you know, Horror Bites was a, always a source of, like, great inspiration. Like, uh, we did it, we'd do certain games and something would just shout to me and say, not only do I have to talk about this on the show, I have to write about it like that. And this is very much one of the, you know, I, I think I started that article by sort of saying, you know, it was... The personification of you know, like if you've ever seen or heard my words on the internet then you know that i love to bang on about the magical time in my young adult life where i was discovering that weird shit on tv at 2 a.m in the morning you know um you know it's my personal nostalgia blanket if you will and uh, it, it's a game that really it's very it really is that you know we we've had so many games where i've said that where it, oh, i get that atmosphere that vibe of it but this literally is it you know you're you're piecing together a story in that way as well which i really thought was always a smart thing and then when i found out Malde was doing like a whole proper game of it you know like that you know and fleshing out even further i was really excited for it you know i, I so looked forward to this and having the luxury and time this week to actually 
sit down and play it you know, in basically one sitting, I think it was. So it uh, was just beautiful. You know, like that again, still very short by most game standards, but I think it, it works for what it is. And, you know, you can come back to it in different ways. Um, yeah, the extra stuff now that has been added really just makes it more intriguing as a game. You know, the whole fun appeal of the original version was that you're getting a story told in a really discordant manner by flicking through the channels, getting a little context of what's going on through different places and different situations and the sense of dread at what is going on. You know, we covered a lot of that in you know that episode. Go back to that Horror Whites episode you should because uh it's mad that was this year yeah <laughs> i was like yeah, yeah when, I, when I look back to that and it was back in march that we sort of covered that i think and to have it come up again you know when we saw that we were like yeah it'd be great if we could sort of cover this you know again because this is the dream of mm-hmm. what we did with the horror bites you know seeing these experiences that have room to grow into bigger things getting to do that we kind of just although we didn't cover the original version we kind of talked that about with uh, Amanda the Adventurer, you know, where it's yeah. like a game that had a similar path where you know, it started being this itchio gem that got made into a bigger experience. Uh, but you know, it feels more personal for us, I think, here because we covered this game as it was, and it was amazing, and we loved it, and, you know, and getting more of it, and it's still feeling like the same experience, you know, deep down because that's always the worry that it, yes. it's not going to be the same <laughs> thing. But needn't worry, you know, if, if you've ever played The Horror of Salazar House, you know, which was Puppet Combo published, I believe, you know, yeah. then you know that, that this is a developer that knows what they're doing. And it's also, you know, in the growth between the March release of Nightmare Zapping, when it was just the Sitio project, to now this full-fledged product, you know, I would say that Chapter 2 shows great growth from not only a storytelling perspective, but also a gameplay perspective. Because I think there's more interactivity in the new content mm. that goes beyond the sort of, I suppose, rudimentary decision making that was in the original content. Yeah. In this, you have basically like a pitfall section where you're running and sliding and jumping. And then there's almost like a um, kind of like a crazy taxi segment where you have to kind of drive through various uh, obstacles and these different things. So, oh, also there's a... Um, a new sort of like rotoscope animation almost Yes, that is used in certain of them that play out instead of maybe a traditional cutscene or something like that. They go with that animation style that feels very much in line with the general animation style mm. of these, but it's more like a cutscene almost, but it's using the sort of language of the visual style of Nightmare Zapping yeah. to really allow this to feel like a growth from a developer standpoint in terms of the technology in these things. But at the same time, it feels perfectly in line. It just feels like that natural continuation that you would hope for with something like this, as you said, right? Mm. I think the fear is always that with more money or backing or these different things, it's like, oh, well, let me take a swing that is much larger than the actual scale of this project. And then it ends up feeling not necessarily like a natural continuation or growth of a project. Whereas with this, there's growth there, but it's using the sort of vernacular or visual style, if you will, of the original project, which Mm. makes it feel like just this very organic continuation of the original Nightmare Zapping um, project. Yeah. And, you know, I when I go back to that idea that, you know, 
worrying about what it would be and is it would really contain that same thing I was worried you know really into um, that very specific feeling you know it's still there and that, that is my favorite thing about it as it stands is I still get that personal feeling that I did about hit of nostalgia that for something that is nothing like the, the thing I'm being nostalgic for, but yeah. just encapsulates it in such a perfect way. You know, that channel hopping thing, as I say, that this game has, you know, has always been special to me. <laughs> always, he says, from a game that came, you know, originally came <laughs> out in March. It, yeah, it's like, that's how many games we end up covering. You know, it's like, it's yep. like March seems like a lifetime ago. Um, yeah, I, I just love the fact that you are, you kind of get compelled to keep sort of going through the channels, not because that's what the game is about, but because you're just waiting to see what the next bit is going to be, what the next story moment is going to be. Even when you get those bits with still images, you are just like transfixed by them because they, they are part of the story still, but they are not what you're expecting. And you know, even like the channels with nothing on them and they're just basically fuzz, it's all just fills in the gaps of that idea you know, I, I said back then when it was in a short form, it is like the holy grail of my watching TV at 2 a.m. and discovering weird shit thing. Mm. And, you know, I still think that now, now this is like the extended edition, if you will, of that. And still, yeah. I believe, short of going back in time, I'm not ever going to get this close to that feeling ever again. You know, and that's the biggest compliment I can pay this game, you know, because. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it has done something that so many games have come close to, but it's done it in a way that is just smart and not been lost in this full fat version, if you will. So, Maldo, if you're listening, you need to keep making new content so Neil can be yeah. continually chase that uh, nostalgia that is ever free, yeah. unfortunately. <laughs> Make me your Jesse Pinkman in season two, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, that was Nightmare Zapping, and we are going to take a quick break before coming back to chat about Xenonauts 2, Save Room the Merchant, and finally Remnant 2. But more on those games in a moment. And we are back from our break, and Neil is going to let us know how Xenonauts 2 uh, differentiates itself from his beloved XCOM 2. <laughs> Well, you see, the thing that uh, Goldhawk Interactive have done with this game is you know, the original was basically not a version of XCOM in the Firaxis sense, but XCOM in the Julian Gollop sense. Uh, that's X-Dash-Com, if you will. And, you know, it's like the best of both worlds. You know, it's really referring back to that original PC sort of heavy tactile nature of everything down to the tiniest thing you know whereas modern one kind of simplifies things which is i found great you know at the time of uh, that series being a, a thing because it simplified it at a time i needed it to be simplified and now i kind of been itching for the idea of it being like more in depth you know having all these like in moving individual things down to like a granular level and yeah this is the better version of that. The original game was, um, you know, great in a lot of ways for what it did, but it was just, it felt a bit off in some ways for me. You know, this is gone through this early access period and really done a good job in sort of learning from that. Um, I think you really have to 
have been in that era to understand what the appeal is about the the Xenonaut series because it's a very simplistic look, you know, it's but tactically and mechanically it's so much deeper than many games of its type. And for me that's great, I think, because you are getting everything that you get from modern XCOM to a degree, but also that intricacy, you know, that has been missing, you know, it's amazing how complex the earlier games were before the reboot and revival. But, you know, they aged, obviously, in so many ways, and there are things about them that don't work. Um, yeah, you get a bit more of that drama, you know, that was in the later editions. Um, yeah, there's still a lot of this game that sort of learns lessons from the first one, where they're like, let's make it a little bit more friendly to people sort of coming into it and i think early access has been the best thing for this game you know in terms of getting out there and really selling the idea of what it can do getting feedback and there's not a lot to say just because i've gone on about XCOM before and you know and that style of game and it is that just the old school stuff just as much and it it does a lot of things I, I like. In my favourite modern XCOM game in terms of like the structure was when uh, Enemy Within, where they added like this you know rogue human element that was like sympathetic to the cause of the aliens, like that. It would come and try and sabotage your shit and like that and do that. And there's that here, you know, in this game in terms of the cleaners, and that really has a cool dynamic because you're fighting a fight on two fronts. And, you know, the mystery of the aliens is bigger here where, you know, you know they're coming. You're pre- you're trying to prepare for the worst part of when it's coming rather than, like, they're here, they're invading, you're right in the thick of it. You are set just before it really kicks off and they are just on the outskirts of things and you don't know a lot about them. And I think when you go into the research nature of it all, it fits a lot better because you are coming into it with a sense of like, we don't know everything. You know, we know bits from the first game, but you know, it, it's still like, we're trying to push away the chance of being annihilated when they do finally just ramp up their attack like that. And fighting this cloak and dagger battle against not only the aliens, but their own sort of human subordinates lends this a much more intense vibe. I mean, this game is brutal even with like a bit more of a hand-holding nature about things. It, you are just constantly overwhelmed with stuff. And yeah, one of the great things about these games is um, it kind of rewards the idea of failure in a way where you, you are kind of excited by it a little, where you, everything's going to shit and you can see that you are seconds away from disaster but you want to see if you can just make one last roll of the dice that will change your fortunes or just keep things going a bit longer sometimes that doesn't work and that's obliteration but sometimes you can come from the brink of everything being absolutely terrible to dragging it all the way back and pushing yourself into a victory stance you know that you never expected and then having gained the hubris of that you can get shut down basically by by getting too cocky and confident in a situation and not really taking your time. You really have to be careful in this game, you know, in terms of positioning. You know, 
characters don't automatically do things. If you want to crouch or look in a certain direction, you have to make that happen with action points and everything like that. So every single motion and movement counts as an action and you have to be careful not to like run too far. You've got to be steady, but you know, the pressure increases on you as you go into the game and you, know, you, you have to move quicker, but you know that that's risky and it, it yeah the intensity just ups and ups and ups so yeah it, it's a really cool way of doing things yeah that i that's um does feel like a nice way of doing throwback whilst you know having a bit of modern styling to it to hear that there's a game you know either more or equally as intense as XCOM that you have to make sure you're dotting your i's and crossing your t's to that degree um that is a standout, I think, because we've seen a lot of games that try to copy what XCOM has done, whether it's adapting from the Firaxis side of things or the classic XCOM, um, and has you know worked to varying degrees most of the time. And if anything, to hear that this is drawing from more of the classical XCOM, which, to be fair, I came to the Firaxis XCOM first, and then when I went back and tried to play classic XCOM, I was like, it simply does not compute, right? It's the type of thing where it's like, at that point, it's a little too hardcore for me and whatnot, and I couldn't get into it. And so to hear that perhaps the UI of Xenonauts 2 is maybe more friendly in terms of teaching the mechanics, or it's just a little bit more inviting, even if it is this very hardcore experience, yeah, that's exciting in a way that I haven't thought about a lot of XCOM clones, if you will, or mm. games that are trying to evoke classic XCOM or just XCOM in general. So to hear that, you know, this is not only the sequel to the original Xenonauts, but it's more, uh, I suppose, more in tune with like the modern gamer's palette that it's more inviting to introducing those hardcore mechanics. Like that's exciting in a way that I don't think I've thought about a great deal of XCOM clones. And the fact that, you know, it's reverting back to that old classical XCOM style of, you know, top down perspective and everything, which was never the issue that I had with getting into classical XCOM mm. because, you know, I grew up playing plenty of real-time strategy games and things like that. So, you know, that aesthetic or that gameplay style always stood out to me. It was just sort of like pairing the crushing difficulty of classic XCOM with the lack of hand-holding or, you know, the complexity with which that original game series really did, you know, yeah. communicate the mechanics and whatnot. And to hear that's a little more streamlined um, or at least presented in a clearer manner um, really makes me want to check out Xenonauts 2 at some point in the future. Yeah, and you know it'll only get better because you know it is still in this burgeoning state where people can yeah. make it. I mean, I mean, one of the biggest bugbears in the early going is the fact the time missions are a big point of contention with a lot of people, and I get it because given how devastatingly accurate you have to be with your thinking, um, yeah, they can be shit to do if, if it goes wrong yeah it, it becomes very frustrating and i think maybe it needs a little slider here and there to sort of accommodate i think one of the most, most welcoming things xcom 2 did you know um in the foraxis era was adding these sort of things where you could push certain things out a bit so you, you know time mission time a time would be extended or you know stuff like that or health things could be different it, need, it probably needs that just to get that or just change the balance somewhat because some of them are just like you, you dread when a time mission comes up because you know what it means. You know that 
any slight deviation from whatever you plan out is going to fuck it up. And <laughs> that's thrilling, but also, yeah, just devastating. And I can really see why it, a lot of people could be iffy on that bit. Well, we're going to switch gears slightly mm. into a more maybe uh, not as highly <laughs> intense situation, but at the same time, a game that is uh, quite challenging at times, which is yeah. Save Room the Merchant. And this is a game that is a follow-up to something that we covered actually either earlier in the year or you know late last year. Again, talk about not having any frame of <laughs> reference for like <laughs> the passage of time and whatnot. But Save Room the Merchant is the follow-up to Save Room, which was a puzzle game that is all based around the inventory system from Resident Evil 4. Mm. So basically, in Save Room, what you would do is you would have your uh, equipment to the side, and then you would have to fit it perfectly into the attaché case and whatnot, and you know, manipulating the objects so they would fit in there perfectly, and then you can traverse, go to the next puzzle and whatnot. Yeah. The Merchant is probably the most organic continuation of that very simplistic, but you know, pretty refined for how simple it was for a puzzler. Um, and the merchant really does ratchet up the difficulty and it does so in a way that again, comes back to the fundamentals of the merchant system from Resident mm. Evil 4. And that being, you know, you can actually go to the merchant now and buy and sell items and equipment and artifacts and gems and these things, as well as upgrading weapons and objects and these different things. Yeah. So it does feel like the natural continuation of Save Room, which, you know, initially when we heard about it, we were like, oh, that's kind of like a cutesy little spin on the traditional sort of puzzle mechanic. But mm. when we actually sat down and played it and talked about it in depth, you know, there was a good amount of just that depth to the mechanics and whatnot and a good amount of challenge for, I think it was 40 levels in the original. And this ha includes a new uh, 40 batch of uh, different puzzles and things. And I would say that this is even more complicated in the best way possible because it utilizes these new mechanics of going to the merchant and, you know, buying and selling equipment because, you know, I think puzzles now have basically two stages, which is you begin with a certain amount of objects or items and half of them are more or less artifacts that, you know, much like Leon Kennedy would go out into the field, he's going to find these things and he can sell them to upgrade weapons and mm. buy new weapons and equipment in these things. And, you know, the first basically phase of each puzzle now is taking items from your overflow, making them fit into the case. So that way then you can go to the merchant and then either combine artifacts or just straight up sell yeah. artifacts like gold bars and these things, which then give you the, you know, coin to then buy specific items that you need to solve a puzzle because you're given a laundry list of things that you have to buy and then position into the attache case. And, you know, that sounds pretty simplistic, but within the first probably six or seven of these puzzles, it starts to get pretty difficult because you need to decide what items you're going to combine, what you're going to sell right off the bat. But then also there's the added difficulty of what do I need to buy mm. from the merchant to then combine with what I am beginning a mission with and whatnot. And, you know, that gives this a new complexity that much like the original, it sounds simplistic, but the ways in which this game is able to take those very simple mechanics and kind of twist them and make the player figure out interesting ways to combine them 
it adds a really great deal of difficulty to it, I think. Mm. And, you know, something that I was even more surprised by was that sometimes the solutions for certain puzzles is not just to fill the attache case. It's that you have to have the certain amount of items to buy and yeah. sell. So that way you can have the right equipment and then you have to make sure your guns are loaded before, you know, you send in big air quotes, Leon, because, you know, <laughs> the game is very tongue in cheek about the fact this is blatantly a homage to Resident Evil 4 to the degree that this time around there are periodic cutscenes from that little codex kind of thing that Leon has where he's communicating with, you know, fake Salazar or these different players. And it's like, he's not rescuing the president's daughter here. He's rescuing the president's dog, <laughs> which is again, like this tongue in cheek sort of thing. But this game has a bigger production value so they can actually do those little sort of narrative things, which to be honest, they don't need to do, but it just shows again, this is not sort of like this gimmicky sort of cash grab type of game. Cause it is cheap. I think this is like a $3 game. Or yeah. Something, but- I, I just was looking at it. It's like, I think you can buy it for like, two pound 50 here so yeah like that and you can buy the two games combined for like three pound 50 so it, yeah it's um good in that regard i think the thing i've noticed because i haven't played it yet but um it, it's great to see it sort of getting that so it, it's expanded you know everything about it looks like an expanded mm-hmm. version of what came before where it was a very simplified simplified idea of what you know that whole inventory system was and now they're incorporating more of like the game mechanics without ever actually doing the game. And I like mm-hmm. that uh, as a really smart way of like pushing it into a new direction uh, whilst being completely different. Yeah, I mean, visually it's, it's a massive upgrade, you know, Yeah. What, but it still feels very Resident Evil 4, you know, which is mm-hmm. exactly what you want, isn't it? Yeah. And I just love that again, They it's a slight tweak to the overall purpose of solving each puzzle which in the yeah. original it was just fill your case and you move on to the next one mm. whereas with this there's like just barely a little bit of logic applied to it make sure that you send the person out into the field with loaded weapons some health supplies and whatnot and then when they come back they've got a case full of you know artifacts that they've pillaged basically and then you sell those and it's again it follows the natural flow of a resident evil game and that wasn't in the original you could have probably made a puzzler again that doesn't actually include that sort of aspect to it. Yeah. But it just makes it feel like that much more of a full-fledged, realized continuation of something that I think a lot of people probably wrote off as being this gimmicky thing. Like, not to put down, you know, how much we're in favor of, uh, you know, itchio small slices of horror and horror bites and these things, but like, this could have very easily been the sort of thing we'd see in horror bites where yeah. there's maybe five or six levels it's a little bit of a sort of test of a, including a puzzler spin on Resident Evil, and that'd be the end of it. But, you know, from the original to now the sequel, it is this fully fledged game that really does draw from the homage, but does not, I think, overly rely on it in the sense that it would be a detriment to the overall complexity mm. of the puzzles. Because at its core, it's a very competent, even, you know, I would say exemplary puzzler based on that mechanic and it's the basis of the homage, but that's not the entire sort of gimmick of the thing, right? It Mm. is a little bit of a gimmick, but overall, like it stands on its own as a puzzler that is actually challenging to the degree. I didn't finish it. I should say that. Um, I got about 25 levels out of 40, I think. But like at that point, you will open up your case for a new puzzle 
And there are going to be instances where you stare at it and you're like, there's no way that this can be done. Mm. And then it's just through trial and error in a way that is, you know, natural for a puzzler, but it's incredibly satisfying when you find out like, oh, this configuration was off by one. And then I can move those two things and you have that aha moment. But then again, the complexity of this merchant uh, sequel is that you get through that first phase, which can be difficult. And now you've got this whole other phase to contend with, which is buying the proper gear and then placing that gear in the case before moving on. So Hmm. I was floored, frankly, that this was as good of a follow-up and if anything, it outdoes the original um, in basically every way possible. Again, thinking about that small mechanic from Resident Evil that is the basis of this game and just making it into something that really does stand on its own. Yeah, yeah. and yeah, I think going to a final game, that's a very apt thing, a sequel that sort of uh, improves upon the original idea. Because uh, Remnant 2 is the game we're going to cover last, you know. Sorry to take over hosting there for a second. <laughs> Please. By the end of this episode, I'm ready for somebody to tap in. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. So, this is in my ballpark anyway, because I'm the one that covered it. But um, I also, to be fair, I didn't play it. So, it's yeah, more than yeah. uh, appropriate for you to introduce it. Well, yeah. And in fairness, that's because the game barely came out by the time you know, uh, we got recording at this point. So, yeah. Gunfire Games, you know, the original remnant from the Ashes. Yeah, it caused quite a stir for what it was, you know, in the world of Soulsborne style games, if you will. Um, it was one of the outliers because it did things that made it stand out. You know, you're really looking for some, an angle when you get into that to really not beat from software at their own game, but do something that makes it stand out whilst building on those established ideas. And, you know, I didn't much care for that original game. But I, I did appreciate the ideas. And it's not too dissimilar stories in some respects with the sequel. But I think the ambition here is more admirable. And I, I can see why, you know, much like we began the show with My Friendly Neighbourhood, where you know it's become a hit, you know, and uh, people are raving about it online. You know, big sites are covering it and stuff like that. Remnant 2 is like, kicking ass at the minute you know in terms of like uh, you know in terms of online play and people watching it and you know in terms of uh coverage and it's well deserved really because it is like a bigger better sequel you know those promises the original game had have been refined this is one of you know a smaller studio to actually use um unreal engine 5 and a lot of the tech with it without using all of it you know, they are using aspects of it that make um, work in places that beyond its, you know, it's punching above its weight as a result, you know, especially in terms of like the lighting, you know, is just fantastic. Um, so, yeah, in simple terms, it's set before, you know, sometime after the events of the first game, uh, it's a post-apocalyptic world where this these fawny creatures known as the Root are basically just investing the world and you know, it makes traveling around really difficult um, and you are basically one of whatever class to mop up those problems whilst investigating different places as you do so. Uh, the game kind of brings two big flexes to the party here. Yeah? Yeah, both sort of inherited from the predecessor. You know, it's a Souls-like that has guns. You know, so that's the first thing that you're like, oh, well, there you go. That that's intriguing in itself. You know, so that 
works pretty well for it, I think. But also the fact that the structure is somewhat procedural, you know, here especially so, um, I think that is the more interesting part because you know, your playthrough can go entirely differently to someone else's. You know, we see from software games, you know, in the Zilk, and generally yeah, people know where you can get from point A to point B to point C, like this, like that. You can, yeah, you may play differently to someone else, but you know, if everyone get got given the same guide, they would go the same way. Not quite possible here because you can randomly be sent to different worlds and there's a very different structure, you know, like you have like futuristic sci-fi worlds and like like lush overgrown forests and things like that. And like the opening area is very much a Last of Us knockoff sort of, um, you know, post-apocalyptic world, you know. Again, visually, often punching above its weight in terms of how it looks because of the use of Unreal Engine 5, Occasionally showing those sort of like um, double A sort of studio sort of things where it, it rough edges that you don't visually see, yeah, you know, they're not there in that sense, but you feel them, you know, yeah. and, and, yeah. and um, that's often a bit iffy to you. Know, that can put you off because it's like when you see like a blockbuster movie that isn't really a blockbuster, and you you it just has all the aesthetics of it but that you can tell the budget's not quite there in certain places. And yeah, so you kind of don't know whether to judge it on the big scale, or the low scale, and, and you can feel a bit conflicted about that. But yeah, that is neither here nor there if you're sort of going into what it does as a game. Um, so like I said, the good thing is that you can have a discussion with someone and say, well, I did this area, then I got to this area. Right, and someone else will go, well, well, my second area was this place, you know, and very different from you, you know. And while much of it within those levels can, you know, be set in stone as to what you do, the bits in between can be very different. So uh, the problem with that, of course, is you don't really get cohesion in terms of storytelling. It's very much like um, more reliant on that uh, idea of gameplay and just going through challenges differently yeah the gameplay is good enough you know i think that it, that doesn't matter i mean it's not spectacular but the class system it has with the use of guns i i think they go together really nicely you know and it gives you genuinely very play styles to sort of go through with this stuff you know one of my you know the one i picked on my playthrough was like a gunslinger style you know duck tower gunslinger yeah um, because you know genre hopping post-apocalyptic tale so why not um and you know it worked exactly like i wanted it to you know, like that it, it felt right while they are very stereotypical classes really when you boil them down just whatever their names are whatever you get to do they are the same bunch of classes you get in every game that has classes um but at the same time it felt cool you know to use and really interesting and throwing that kind of character into different types of world, you know, like that, that you don't know what's coming next in terms of what you're going to approach. It's quite exciting, you know, like that. It's a difficult game to really get into in terms of like navigating places sometimes. 
I think it works better when you have people with you, you know, on you know, co-op play is actually a more permanent fixture than in a from software game where, you know, you are, you know, six page manual and how to make people turn up in your game sort of thing. You know? And yeah, I think the game really does just sing when you have a team of people with different classes working through these worlds and the world design at times is just fantastic. Even if it is like cribbing on stuff, it looks wonderful. I mean, there is literally a world that is bloodborne, you know, like that in design in so many ways. And it's great because of it. It just looks great. Every single environment you go into has something. Even if some of them are a bit uninspired in terms of like ideas. They they look good, and the enemy design is pretty spectacular in places. It, it again just comes back to that inconsistency because of the way the game is structured, where it's potluck whether you get a good run or a bad run in terms of the best bits of that. Um, but yeah, that, that's the cost the game has for you. I think that you know because it has that procedural nature. You on the one hand you have an excitement every time you play it because it's never going to be the same twice but it also lacks that cohesion that you might want where you feel like you're actually making some sort of progress and you don't quite feel that here uh, I mean the level design is very sprawling a bit aggressive in that regard and because it's somewhat procedural in places it feels hard to sort of get a grip on where you're going. And again, this is why having other people involved kind of makes it easier because it's easier to navigate. And, you know, given we are talking about a game that is a Souls-like in so many ways, you are going to go into it with a certain degree of trepidation when it comes to it to combat because, you know, you're going to get your ass handed to you either way. You know, <laughs> yeah, there's very little in the way of signposting. You know, I, I think I wrote that, yeah, it has a very firm attitude of figure it out, dingus, you know, to everything you do. You know, that ambiguity is not going to be for everyone, but I think it's probably a large part of the appeal for the people that are really revering it right now, you know. Um, yeah, it's grand in, in so many ways. It's a very difficult game to sort of summarise for me in some ways because, you know, I think it's really good. What it does, and I think it's got really interesting ideas. I don't think they're all pulled off that well, but I've not really seen a game outside of a From game really do something as interesting as this consistently. Uh, you know, because normally there's something really good in these games that aren't by From that have a good hook, and you're like, oh, that, that's intriguing, and then they'll miss some fundamental point, and the rest of it will feel a bit sour. Uh, this really does feel like its own thing whilst cribbing heavily from other things at the same time. And I think that's about the closest you get, you know. Uh, I think it, it's different enough that it's a good game and, you know, it deserves the success it's getting, without a doubt. I guess my big question would be then, do you see a path for the continuation of either a player base or, you know, just from a content standpoint that perhaps you do not see with something like Exoprimal. You know, the lengths with which this game could continue on for the foreseeable future um, from either a content standpoint or just having a larger player base in that res uh, respect. Oh, yeah. I think because I go back to that procedural nature of it anyway, you know, it means everyone can go into it again 
and play it differently. I mean, you literally cannot see everything in a playthrough because of the way the game works. It is impossible. And like as intimidating as that is, that does leave you with the idea of like, well, if I try this time, it might be different. I might get different things. Uh, and yeah, I think that really works for this game. Just because of the things, the technology it's utilizing, while not like to the full effect, it's doing enough with it where you're like, okay, this has promise. And it's actually one of the best uses I've seen of Unreal Engine 5 in a game so far in that it's utilizing the technology to make a game look better than it probably would have, run better than it would have, and to add a bit of variety where it may not have had it. Because yeah, early on, you would be very much in thinking that just another one of those sort of things. But I think there's enough, there is enough there. And, you know, it has the room to be expanded upon if needed. And I, given the early success, and I think sales have been good too, I think it'll do all right. I think we'll get more of this. And, you know, that, that's great to get an outsider do a good Souls-like and be so well-revered is honestly a really difficult job. So, yeah, hats off to Gunfire Games for making something that is, you know, connected with people so much already. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like an insurmountable challenge in many regards, and yet to hear that something has delivered on that in a way that, you know, is clearly drawing some pretty clear inspiration, mechanically speaking, and also maybe a little bit world uh, speaking, but at the same time, like, is able to do its own thing mm -hmm. in a way that is entertaining, whether it's similar or whether it's, you know, being this sort of branching experience type of a thing that has more of an emphasis on multiplayer. I mean, that, that has me certainly more excited than even thinking about checking out Exo Primal. Yeah. Uh, you know, you kept talking about like the world of Remnant 2 and also just the sort of post apocalyptic sort of aspect of it, like. Playing a gunslinger, I mean, you're speaking my language, so that's <laughs> definitely uh, one of those experiences that I definitely need to get on board with sooner rather than later. Um, but that's going to do it for this month of the inventory. Yeah. I mean, again, you know, I'm a broken record at this point where it seems every month we get to, uh, you know, the first of the month and we're kind of like, oh, you know, <laughs> not a whole lot on the horizon. And then <laughs> within like five days, I'm eating my my words basically because we once again have this crop of games that uh you know whether it's single player focus multiplayer focus whether it's kind of harkening back to survival horror classics and whatnot or otherwise uh something more modern such as a Soulsborn. yeah seemingly we always find uh these little gems that definitely stand out whether they're triple a or indie and you know with something like nightmare zapping being basically like a dream come true in terms of seeing a horror bite project flourish to a full fledged project that ends up on steam and whatnot and can, you know, get that financial support, but also, you know, having this sort of uh, permanent home on steam, right? Yeah. It's not the type of thing where it's like you see a project on itch.io and then all of a sudden it kind of disappears once in a while or something like that, the kind of ever evolving uh, digital landscape of indie games and whatnot. So it was nice to go from, something like Nightmare Zapping all the way to maybe uh, a bigger AAA project such as Exoprimal that has that big studio backing and whatnot mm. um, and cover, you know, all the bits and bobs in between that. Yeah. And, you know, I think we'll just sort of point out that um, there probably won't be an inventory traditionally next month because uh, Jay is going on a much deserved holiday and uh, we will do our sort of games of the year so far in place of that. And, you know, 
tending to certain job changes, the inventory might have to change anyway. So um, we will work on that. But yeah, this is probably the last inventory as it is, just because uh, I won't be reviewing games really the way I have been before. So when I have the same access time, maybe a problem, which we'll see. We'll work something out similar, I think, in the same way we did with Horror Bites. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see what September brings, I suppose, by that point. And, uh, <laughs> Might be some changes uh, in the future, but I think our uh, determination with covering a wide spectrum of games, uh, whether it's indie or AAA, will uh, continue for the future. Absolutely. Yeah, man. As always, it's a pleasure chatting horror with you for Safe Room. I look forward to doing it next week. Thank you for listening to another episode of Safe Room. If you enjoy the show, please rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Safe Room Pod for show updates. As always, our new episodes for Safe Room drop every Monday, but our bite-sized episodes of Horror Bites are Indie Horror Showcase release every Thursday. You can follow our Horror Bites Twitter account at HorrorBites underscore SR. Join our Discord channel, Safe Room Podcast, chat with us and other horror fans about the genre we all love. And finally, you can send emails to saferoompod at gmail.com if you'd like to share your thoughts on a game we're going to cover. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you guys next Monday.